What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What is John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the Word of Faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these, or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. Thank you for listening to us today. Our episode of Theology Answers is going to be on the authority of Scripture. Now, many of our listeners have asked the question in some shape or form about the authority of Scripture, what does it mean, you know, what is sola scriptura, how do we know the Bible is authoritative, is it the final authority on things, and, you know, growing up in the South, we we learned a song as a child called the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, and the lyric says, I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Now, that's a little hokey, but in the end, that's really where we as the church, that is, those who are believers, should stand when it comes to the authority of Scripture. We know that Scripture is authoritative. So today, we want to talk about why the Scripture is authoritative, and we want to answer the question, how do we know the Scripture is authoritative? I received a a message this week, Brother Edward, from a gentleman who is in the Roman Catholic Church, and he asked this question this way. He said, doesn't Scripture contradict the idea of sola scriptura, insofar as it never states that Scripture is the sole authority, nor supremely authoritative, nor that it alone contains God's Word? And so when you think about these questions in relationship to the other ones that we always get, usually what we see when it comes to the idea of, you know, do we believe the same thing? Do we believe truth? Do we believe this, that, the other? Everybody wants to argue philosophy, argue idea, argue tradition. But when it comes to the table of saying, well, the Bible teaches this or the Scriptures teach that, we often get the rebuttal, well, you know, the Bible's not authoritative. And so you and I... As reformers, we, we hold on the idea of sola scriptura. We hold on the idea that the Bible is the final authority on all matters related to God, His revelation, salvation, Jesus Christ, who He is, etc. And so in today's podcast, I want you and I to talk about the Bible itself how it reveals its own authority. And so I'll just give you the floor and let you start talking about that, and I'll chime in as we have opportunity. But that's, that, that's what I want to do in the beginning is, how does the Bible reveal itself as authoritative? Okay. Um, yeah, there, there's, among Christians, there's much disputation as, and confusion, I think, when we say uh, Scripture alone is the final authority of, of our faith, it's the final rule of faith, for our lives in all areas of uh, doctrine and practice, because as you know, Jay, there's many who would hold to the idea that Scripture can uh, 
audible voices or uh, some kind of audible communication or mental communication by the Spirit and all these things are the Word of God. So they're relying on prophecies and extra-biblical information. And as I've I've said, many of these folks, as I see it, are functionally functionally Gnostic. Right. Special revelation that us, you know, lay people that should, you know, we don't we don't have. So I think um, it, you know, and this issue, of course, really does go back to the Reformation. That in in uh, in such a way as to um, put up the, the the sole or the five solas against the Roman Catholic Church, right. who is, I think, the most popular. A religious construct who denies scripture alone, and for them, as we were just talking earlier, for them, um, it's scripture and tradition is the word of God. Even though Rome officially does not have a uh, again a official authoritative definition as to what tradition is. Yes, sola scriptura simply means that the scripture. It is the teaching that Scripture is, the for the Christian, the Church's sole infallible, authoritative rule of faith for issues of faith and practice. They involve doctrine. Right. We don't we don't pick and choose. Right. Right. Um, you know when we and you, you quoted that Catholic, which is a very a very common uh, assertion that the Scripture doesn't teach uh, the authority or scriptura. Well, neither does the Roman Church in the sense they have definitive definition as to what tradition is, or as to uh, whose tradition is infallible in the same line as uh, uh, the written word. While traditions can be constructive at times, and and subject, we know that subjective feelings can seem true, but it always must be verified by the higher infallible authority to Holy Scripture. Yes. What do we see with the Brians? Who do they appeal to? They appeal to the Scripture, yep. I mean, this was this was the, exactly, this was the Apostle Paul. It wasn't just some guy from the corner. This was the Apostle, and the Brians weren't, you know, they weren't antagonistic to Christianity, part of, part of the Church, but yet one of the highest pillars of the Church, the Apostle Paul, was verified in light of Scripture. And while the Bible doesn't mean a single breath of knowledge, it does con- contain, as you said it, James, everything which is necessary for our salvation. I think this point is made in uh, the end of John, chapter 20, uh, uh, around 30 and 31, when John points out that there was many things that Jesus did. And he says that they're just not written in this book. But these things, these necessary things, these things have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ of God, and by believing, that believing you may have life in his name. Apologetic and evangelistic. We have Scripture in our hands. There's nothing else, there's no other infallible source that we can rely on, because subjective feelings, or, or what you think the Spirit is telling you, all that is just coming from self. You're using your feelings as the arc of truth, and we've talked about this before, right, too. Right. It's dangerous because that doesn't protect you. No. That doesn't guard you. That doesn't instruct you, right? 
infallibly. Now, when you asked that question, you know, about, or you quoted the guy, the Catholic guy, who talks about Scripture doesn't teach um, uh, sola scriptura. Well, you know, that's like saying Scripture doesn't teach the Trinity. Right. No, the word sola scriptura is not there. <laughs> the word Trinity is not there. Right. You know, there's a lot of English doctrinal words or, or extra-biblical doctrinal words that aren't there, but as, as we know, these these words uh, are used because they define the biblical data. I like what Paul said. I think he deals with this in Colossians 2.8. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy, right. the philosophy, and empty deception according to the traditions of men, right. according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And how do we get word of Christ? How do we know the differences between the philosophy to which he's referring and... The, the teachings according to Christ. Well, it's Scripture. Right. You know, we, we have recorded the teachings of Christ. We have recorded the teachings of the Apostles. We can't trust anything as infallible. So, uh, you know, and and we'll get into some of the passages that actually, I think, uh, verify exegetically, contextually, the whole idea that Scripture in and of itself is authoritative, infallible, and dependable. Yes. Absolutely. And if you think about it, you know, it, it's one of those things where in Hebrews 1 always comes to mind, as well as, you know, Second Timothy mm. 3.16. Hebrews 1 says, God in many times in many ways spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days he speaks to us through his Son. Then we see John reiterating the idea that Jesus Christ is the God that has always been, the eternal God, who is God the Son, who is the Word that spoke everything into being. So the very nature of God's revelation, even in his practice, who God is, what he says, and what he does, is secured for us. What you're saying there, Brother Edward, he's secured that for us through the writings of the prophets and now the writings of the apostles. And it's interesting because everyone that I speak to who claims to have some sense of faith, even the even the cults who have a Christ um, like the Witnesses or the Mormons who have a Christ of some sense, have some semblance of Jesus, right. they, will, they will automatically agree with me when I say that God is, is sovereign. They will say that until you start picking apart what that actually means. But most importantly, they'll say that God is sovereign and that he holds all authority. And then we ask the question, how do we know that? Well, because the Bible teaches us that. So if we're appealing to other things that we don't get that information, where we can't find information about the authority of God, and we're, and, and we're saying that there are other things but the Scripture, but we're appealing to the very idea of God being authoritative that's found in Scripture, it's almost really ridiculous. It's an absurdity in my mind to think that the Bible right, is not right. the Bible is not authoritative. So then how do we know that God is authoritative? How do we know that God is sovereign? How do we know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If it's not through the teaching of Scripture, then it is not true. We can't find any other source. And I've I had someone who I've known online for a couple of years who continues to tell me that one day God's going to open my mind and open my heart to the truth, and I'm going to let go of the Bible, and I'm going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and thus have a relationship with God that's by the Spirit alone. But doesn't Jesus even say that the Spirit of God teaches us the Scripture? Does it, you know, I mean, it's, it's just really weird to me that this is something that is taking place in our day, and 
it's really not just these weird things. It's not these off-the-wall ideas that we don't need the Bible at all and the other silly idea that we know things about God that aren't from the Bible when they absolutely are. But it's also the fact that the authority of Scripture has been relegated to this to this secondary um, authority in the local church. And I'm not just talking about in Catholicism or the cults. I mean in so many so-called evangelical circles, we see the Bible not even being used in application, in pastoral theology, and not even being used in the, in the sense correctly, not even being used in proper exegesis and interpretation. Because then we get that argument that people say, well, that's your interpretation, or that's my interpretation. We can all think about how we feel, like we've joked before, the, you know, the six sola, sola feels. Uh, you know, we, it doesn't matter what we feel. And even then, though, if we all have philosophy or feelings, if we are honest, all of those things, in some sense, have come from what we have learned through what Scripture has taught us. And then we have expounded upon right, it and right. made it into a personal doctrine. Or, I mean, that's, and it's usually always, <laughs> if it's not biblical, it's always error. And that's, and that's what I see. So this is not just uh, this podcast. We're not just talking about people who have off-the-wall ideas. But I see this played out in, in many Christian churches, in many Baptist circles, in Presbyterian circles, where their own confession would hold to the idea of God's Word being authoritative, but they won't submit to it in the practice and the principles that uh, when they do their ministry, when they when they deal with what they should be doing on the Lord's Day, when they handle church discipline, that's a big one that nobody really wants to use the Bible for. Uh, when it talks about the, the roles of men and women in the home and in the church, when it talks about submissiveness of children. I mean, everybody wants to talk about Dr. Phil, not Christ and not the Scripture. So this is, this is more than just let's talk about the authority of Scripture from a historical position. This has implications, I believe, all the way to the gospel and if we're not holding to the scripture on these peripheral issues of of life, then we're probably not going to hold to the scripture ultimately when it comes to our justification, which is our eternal life. Right, right. Those are those are very excellent and vital points for the Christian. And I think this whole program, James, can be simply this. It's not safe to go beyond scripture. Right. It's just not safe. Right. Paul says don't go beyond scripture. What does he tell Timothy? Does he not instruct Timothy, a man of God, right, a somewhat of a uh, perhaps a overseer of many churches in Ephesus? Right. But Paul says this to Timothy: Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. Yes. What what doctrine did Tim have? Did Timothy have this, you know, this just kind of subjective doctrine that he wrote on a napkin at the, at the, at the Mediterranean restaurant down the street, or did, <laughs> what? Pay close attention to your doctrine, preserving these things. So if you do, he says, if you do this, you'll endure to salvation for both you and the ones who hear hear you. And, you know, as a minister of the gospel, um, and a a lay Christian who's not in ministry, the gospel will deliver and it will protect you from error and from heresy. It's really interesting, error and heresy, because I've seen people, uh, Calvinists, and and non-Calvinists together, they make calls on each other. But the judgments are based inside of Scripture on a particular concept that they're holding to that's really beyond a, a definitive gospel definition or something else. They'll call they'll each other, you know, uh, they'll use the term Dandel heresy, and not, not just on, on that issue, but many other, uh, uh, many other doctrines 
um, and they go, I think they go, what I see, they go outside of Scripture to make these projections mm. in their estimation. Um, how you believe God ordained uh, Adam. Right. Uh, or, you know, um, or how th- some of the, 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 the doctrines of the covenant in the Old Testament. I mean, come on. Gandal heresy, what Scripture really projects that or actually expresses if you have a wrong view of of covenant that this is some kind of damnable Daniel heresy do they understand that damnable heresy when you look in the scripture here we have again a scripture definition right. that second peter peter uses in second uh, peter these are people that didn't have a uh, the, the the god the orthodox view of god it wasn't just a peripheral matter when peter calls them false teachers false prophets they always had a different god yes. You know, they weren't someone who just made a mistake in their eschatology, you know. And it's also good to remember, you know, when Satan tempted the Lord, he always appealed Scripture. Right. And every single, what I found, James, every single non-Christian cult, non-Christian religion, atheistic religion, that's not a contradiction right. in terms, nope. because you can be devoted to anything that's not God. That's right. Has a reason why sola scriptura does not work. We see that with atheistic, non-Christian groups like LDS, Jehovah's Witnesses, some charismatic circles. Roman Catholics are the most famous for their rejection of the written word. That's why they keep getting in trouble and pronouncing so many heresies, because it's not safe to have a view that Scripture and uh, man doctrines are are some kind of infallible source. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's it's really it's really odd to me because you know we we've never had in our current in our in our lifetime we've never had more opportunity for education we've never had more availability of information I mean we have you know search engines and everywhere you turn there is some organization or some ministry teaching something and you can find good teaching but it just seems to be that people go with whatever is on fire. And they just run with it until right. it fizzles out. It's it's like getting behind the team that's the underdog when they become the champion. And then once they lose, you just sort of stick it. I'm not saying that's holistic for everyone. But I have found, even right. in our own community here, down in the Bible Belt, there there are several pastors who will reject the idea that the Bible is authoritative over the New Testament church of this day. Now, they'll say it was authoritative wow. of the day of, of Paul, but they'll say that it's lost a little bit of its relevance and that there is no – we cannot have absolute sovereign authority from Scripture over the local church. So they get to pick and choose what those things are. And they'll all even, – even some of them will say, well, yeah, we believe the gospel that's there. But how can you believe the gospel that's there when Jesus, when he says, obey my commands, he's talking about the totality of everything he's taught about himself, the teaching that he's taught of himself. When he teaches the multitudes in John's gospel and in in the synoptics, we see he teaches who God is, who God the Father is, and this stuff is recorded. Where else are we going to get it? If it's not in the Bible, where are we going to get it? And though they will say, well, we agree with that, it's just a matter of time before these types of things are pushed to the side. We don't like Paul anymore. Well, if we don't like Paul, guess what? We don't have really a whole picture of justification by faith alone. We don't have a picture of propitiation right. in a in a systematic way. We don't have it. 
We just get to infer what it really means um, by word usage or, or, or things of that nature. So there is a there is a strange, strange phenomenon, and I think the Bible has told us exactly what's going on when Paul tells Timothy there will come a day where people will not endure sound teaching, but they will then, what, gather up teachers for themselves to scratch their itching ears, and then they purvey this erroneous doctrine. They purvey this idea that you don't need the Bible. Why? Because that's what they want to do. That's what the devil does. I think it's really important that we that, that you reminded our listeners. You all need to remember, the devil subjected the idea of the authority of Scripture to Jesus. So <laughs> in order for Jesus to be tempted, Satan used Scripture because as a Jewish man, Jesus held that Scripture was the highest authority over the over the over the world and over believers over the church over Israel, uh, so there is no other way in which we can we can find um, find any revelation of God, and that's something we talked about in a podcast. Uh, if we haven't, we we've talked about it on the phone, and it's going to be in some podcasts. But we we talk often about the idea that we find error and heresy and false religion often. When they, when we ask the question, or we get the answers of two questions, and one of those, how does God justify his people? How does he save his people? And how do we hear from God? And that how do we hear from God is really relevant to this discussion we're doing today. What are some things that you've seen in your apologetic ministry where people say they've heard from God? What are some other means through which is, that, that are very popular about hearing from God well, these days? Uh, well, I tell you, there, I, I, I see two categories of, of folks who assert they hear from God. And, and it's always, it's normally in contradiction to what you're saying, or what where we, for instance, will uh, will express a doctrine, will teach a doctrine that they've either never heard of, or they, they just completely disagree with. Like, Romans 9, well, <laughs> you know, that's not my God, uh, you know, the Arminians say. But, right. And here's, here's what I found, two categories. There's the first category, who is uh, charismatic normally, okay. where they actually hear They'll go up at three in the morning, or they heard a voice, right? Right. That's category number one. Very dangerous, very nonsense. And then there's another category of the folks who aren't charismatic. And they'll do it this way. They'll say, it just doesn't feel right. Or they're judging it by the arc of their their, their emotion and feeling. Right. I'm not going to serve a God that, you, that, you're, that you're giving me. God is love, or I'm, I don't see that. Or, you know, they're using their feeling mm. to judge what God said and what he did not say. So that's what I see, those two categories. Either they actually say it or they actually feel it, right. but it's all adventitious or outside of Scripture. Right, and, that, and it's interesting because, you know, we know very, very well that if someone's hearing a voice and it's not supported, and I'm not saying that we can't have thoughts, uh, you know, I've heard bumps in the night go, oh, who's there? But, I mean, I'm, people will actually claim they hear God speaking, it's different than someone having a thought and then going, wow, you know what? That reaffirms what, I mean, Scripture just came to my mind or what have you. Right. We know that the that the Lord speaks to us, but he does so through Scripture. And the voice we hear in our head typically is my own voice. I talk to myself in my head. But what the other person does, and we know that that's absurd to say that God spoke audibly because he just does not operate like that in his immutability and the scripture it goes against what scripture teaches because if they did if god did and they did hear god they need to add that in the back of the bible and make it part of the canon but the second person that says it just doesn't feel right 
what this, I believe, is, is that someone who has not been taught by the authority of Scripture to begin with, and they have been given a caricature of God, they've been given a caricature of God's attributes, they've been given a caricature of the Son of God, and in turn, they've extrapolated this caricature, and they've made themselves a comic strip of what the gospel is, of what redemption is, of what the Bible is, of what Christianity is, and you see it constantly. And I'm not picking on any particular people right now, but you see it constantly. A lot of people are like, well, the Bible says we shouldn't do this, or the Bible says we shouldn't do that, or you said it, that's not my God. When I hear someone say, that's not my God, what they're saying is that the God of the Bible is not the God of me. That's not my God. And what that means is is that they have come to believe and to trust in the caricature of some other being other than Yahweh, other than Jesus Christ, the God of heaven. And in doing so, according to Jesus' teaching, if they don't believe in the one true God of Scripture and they don't believe in the one whom he has sent, then they do not have eternal life. They are, they are blind, even though they may have religion. Some, sometimes we just forget at how moral and how religious and how spiritual the Pharisees were, but yet they were condemned, and they knew the Scripture better than you and I will ever know the Scripture. <laughs> they had it memorized from childhood, and I mean, this is something that I would love to be able to have the brain capacity to memorize the entire uh, you know the first five chap five books of the Bible at least in the minimum much I mean I would love to be able to have Romans word for word memorized and John word for word memorized right. etc. Right. So these weren't these weren't just pagan, half-hearted so-called religious folks. These were zealots. They lived. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees birthed out of the Maccabean revolt when you know Epiphanes right. was just basically. Uh, sacrificed a pig on the Holy of Holies, and then his right. his predecessor, they, they took him out. And the Pharisees were the group of people who rose up and said, we want to be reformed. We want to reform Judaism back to its original place. And then all of a sudden now, they are the ones who don't believe the word that they even have because they don't, it doesn't feel right to them. The same thing's true today. The modern day Pharisee is not necessarily the person who trusts in their works, but the person who trusts in a God that's not the God of the Bible. And that's a very dangerous position right. to be in. Yeah. When you look, you know, getting back to your first, your first, uh, that comment that the Catholic made, um, that's all we, what all we see is appealing to scripture uh, Paul appealing to Scripture, um, God, the Gospels, when we look at the record of Christ dealing with the Pharisees, he always appealed to the Scripture, like in Matthew 5, 17 to 19, right. he talks about he came to fulfill the law, and heaven and earth will never pass away, until, um, or, or shall, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished, so on and so forth. He always put emphasis on the Word. He always quoted the Word. He said, if you believe, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. Right. You know, and then we see Paul. Now, here, here's a, a, I think here is one of the proof texts, so-called proof texts that a Roman Catholic will use, verses like Second Thessalonians, uh, what is Second Thessalonians two fifteen, mm. where Paul talks about tradition. I was going to ask you a question about tradition. When Paul says, "So then, brother," he's talking to the Thessalonians, uh, stand firm, uh, hold to the traditions that you were taught. Right. Right. Whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Right. Now, it says, hold to the traditions, and the Roman Catholic will say, see, Paul held to both the word of mouth and the written word. 
So how can you say tradition is not true? How can you say traditions are wrong, or it's just Scripture alone? Certainly Paul didn't have that idea, because I'm reading a verse in in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, you know, where he appeals to both. And that's probably one of their their grand proof texts that they they have in their pockets. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's something that I learned even in my teen years being part of Baptist churches. You know, you'd ask a question, like, why do we do this? Well, that's what Baptists do. Uh, well, why do we believe this way? Well, that's what Baptists believe. Uh, and there was always this large, um, I don't know, emphasis, this overemphasis on being certain of your salvation, and it always followed up with what you could do with your mouth and what you did with your feet. Uh, and what I mean by that, and with, it's like, the, you know, we've we've already done a podcast on altar calls that'll be dropped sometime soon. But we, we know that the practices of the assurance of salvation, and when, when I begin to ask, why do we do these things? Well, that's because the Bible teaches it. But no one could show me where the Bible teached it, taught it. No one could show me that there was any place in Scripture where someone could be certain of their salvation because of certain words that they said, if they believed them in their hearts, etc. You know, and that's that that that's part of that tradition of man versus the tradition of Scripture. But when we see what Paul right. exhorts those those Christians there in Second Thessalonians, I mean, he's talking about to the traditions that were passed from him to them, not from Judaism. He's talking about what we taught you in word and what we wrote to you in letter. This is the authority over what you do as a church and who you are. This is the authority that gives you the confidence to know that you've been saved by the grace of God and the power of the gospel of Christ. This is the tradition that you hold to. Don't be shaken by any other teaching that comes in and, teach, and teaches you anything else. Don't fall in don't fall prey to being a fault in the false prophecy look at look at paul's first letter that he wrote to the galatians i mean these christians the 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 judaizers had come in and tried to infiltrate them with the traditions of israel and what happened paul says no 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 if you fall suit in this if you put your trust in this you are anathema you are cut off from christ and it wasn't that they could lose their salvation but what he knew is that the authority of the word of god that he wrote the teachings of the truth of Scripture, the teachings of the truth of the gospel, the teachings of the truth of Christ that he taught them with his mouth, he reiterated with his pen. And so he reminded them of these things so that the sheep, like John 10, that hear the voice of their shepherd, the true regenerate persons in the church would go, wow, this is the truth. Remember, the Spirit of God would give them confidence to know what was the truth and con- right. and the assurance to be discriminating and discerning to throw away that which was not. So those who would not throw away the traditions of men, they were considered what unbelievers. They were considered unbelievers. Right, right. And we, right. we see that in Titus. He says, "Don't let people become divisive in their doctrine and their practice. Tell them once, and then kick them out. Have nothing else to do with them." This is because the to to go against the teaching of Scripture is one of the greatest heresies that will always befall us because there are so many unconverted people who get overcome by cool and new, and it's not really new, but these ideas that are new to them, and they fall for it hook, line, and sinker because they don't have another option. And so then they begin to start going out into the, into the world and infiltrating the assembly of the true church where the true body lives. And then they twist it and turn it, and it causes confusion. And um, 
back to this thing right. about church discipline. <laughs> I, I mention it ten times a day. It seems like you know, church right, discipline right. is necessary because people will be divisive. That's a is a, excellent point. Um, and same with the the point in Second Thessalonians. That I, I, it just it just shows the devotion that a Roman Catholic has to his church, yes, and not to the Scripture alone, because they're not taught. Now, it's not that they're not able to exegete a passage or passages, right. but they're not taught to go against the teachings of Rome. And as you know, in Second Thessalonians, the problem with equating this with sacred tradition, the Roman Catholic Church, was a lot of problems. But num- problem number one is the context to which Paul is writing. One, and this is a very important point, if you read from verse 1 to 3, yes. you know, before he gets to 15, it's about the second coming of Christ. Yes. The second coming of Christ. And if you look in verse 3 and all the way up to verse uh, 14, this is all what, what Paul is saying is the tradition that I told you, but he wrote, as you just mentioned, this is the traditions that he already reiterated, and it has to do with that's all it has to do with the second coming of Christ. There is no other context here. Right. It's the second coming of Christ. And here's the interesting thing the Thessalonians, when you look at the first few verses, Paul says, don't be, I think he says, don't be shaken in your mind or troubled right. uh, by a word or uh, or a letter as coming from us. Right. They were being duped yep. by a false apostolic letter, as others are duped by a Sarah Young or Beth Moore book, right. right? A false apostolic letter as coming from apostles, right? right. And Paul says, um, uh, don't be shaken up. You know, he gets into his context, but here's what's interesting. What do we read... In chapter 17, about the Bereans, why were they more noble than the Thessalonians, which we're reading about this in this letter? Right. Well, they they examined Paul by or in light of Scripture. They weren't duped. The Thessalonians didn't do that, hence they were getting fooled or duped by a false extra-biblical letter, and that should warn, that should be a flag for everyone. It's not safe. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, don't go beyond what is written. That's right. That's right. And, you know, contextually what Paul's dealing with in the traditions of Second Thessalonians, he, he wrote them a letter already, 1 Thessalonians, and he opens that right, letter right. With, this, with these words, we give thanks to God always for you, continually mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God the Father, uh, our God and Father, the work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For, for we know, brothers, who are loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, not like we taught it, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So he knows they're elect right. because they came to faith through the teaching of Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes this letter, and he reasserts that. Peter does the same thing when he tells—I think you've even alluded to this already, Second Peter 1, where he talks about the, the, the Word of God. He says, we didn't follow these, these myths, that we didn't make things up and devise this clever myth when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus— he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about that. And he says, when we received, when he received honor and glory from the Father, and he, we heard the voice that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this very voice from heaven, 
because we were with him. We saw it. We heard it. We are witnesses. So you better listen to what we have to say. But what does Peter do? He says, but that is not even what's most important, that we are the witnesses. He says, you have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. It is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So that he then says, knowing first this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture has ever come from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, as an apostle, writing his letters, which are the Word of God, he in, in those already then, I mean also then, appeals to the written text as the better and more confirming thing. Our testimony is sufficient and it is good, but listen, it is rooted in the prophecy of the Scripture. So that, I mean, I don't understand. I don't understand how these things, except that someone is just unregenerate, I don't understand how all of these evidences that we see throughout the text can can make people say, yeah, I don't believe that. I think it's a combination. Sure, there's an un, and we know there's a lot of unregenerate people right. sitting in church pews. Um, I think it's a combination because, you know, I read I read verses like that Peter the church because you mentioned Peter. This came to mind. Second Peter three sixteen, he says Paul's letters are hard to understand. Verse is awesome. I mean, Peter's actually confirming that Paul's letters were being circulated as a group. Right. Just. It's such a great proof text for the reliability of the New Testament. Before Peter was executed, Paul's letters were being circulated, and his audience knew these were Paul's letters. That's right. Um, he says Paul's letters are hard to understand, but then he says that the the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Yes. And what's interesting is Peter says it's the ignorant that do this. The, the word, as we discussed before, amethase in the Greek, it literally means no study or unstudied, uh. Uh, the, 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 the untaught. I think the KJV has a good—I think the KJV has untaught, or I, I'm trying to recall the different translations. Ignorant, I think, is not a good literal translation. I think the NIV has, wins the award for uh, <laughs> worst translation of amethyst, <laughs> but it literally means unstudied. So the question is, who twists Scripture, who distorts Scripture— Within Christianity, it's the unstudied. Within unregenerate people, of course, it's because they don't have the Spirit of God, and they just don't believe anything. But there's a lot of and uh, unstudied Christians out there, and I know you as a pastor take uh, passion and, and put great emphasis on teaching. Yes. And as every pastor should be a teaching pastor. Right. And uh, a lot of times you'll be ridiculed for your demanding doctrinal precision, but Peter says it's the unstudied that distorts the Scripture. Right. It's the unstudied that, that that do this, and that, again, should be a red flag, not only for the elect, but for, I think, for the uh, for us knowing why the unregenerate uh, twist so many Scriptures, because they, they don't have abilities to interpret, but why do Christians twist Scripture? Because there's a I mean, look at, I did a newsletter one time on the 10 most misapplied and misinterpreted passages, mm-hmm. and it was based on the exegesis of these passages. And Christians do take Jeremiah 29, 11, and um, uh, John three sixteen and all these other passages, right. and they do twist it. They do distort it. 
Why? Peter gives the answer. They're unstudied as to the textual definition, as to the exegetical analysis of the text. They're unstudied. They don't do anything like that because they're not taught. Right. That's right. Yeah, we do put an emphasis on teaching because it is what God has called the pastor to do. A pastor who is not studying is a pastor who cannot teach. And it's not just to say, let's become academics with the Word of God, because when we see the pages, just for example, in John, I'm I'm in week 53 in John's Gospel. We have about a month left in John 6, and that's how many sermons I've preached thus far. So when we're talking three or four years to preach through this text, and I'm going a little fast uh, in my estimation. But it's not just, hey, this is what the Bible teaches. Now y'all go home. You had a good study. Thank y'all. But this is what the Bible teaches about who God is and what he's done and what he's called us to do. So now because this is true, because we are filled with God the Spirit, because we are regenerated by God the Spirit, because we are redeemed by God the Son, we now have an application. We have a practical theology in this learning that we live out. We live out amongst ourselves. So a pastor that's not teaching, number one, he's going to continue to, per, to, to, to just turn over unregenerate church members. Number two, everything that the world has to offer is going to come right back into the church and going to turn it upside down. And the Bible, the most of what, the most Bible teaching that most Christians get in America is if they read some text at the very beginning of the te- of the of the sermon, or if they're in some type of small group where they dig through the scriptures a little bit, and that's that's being very conservative in my say- in my saying they get the scripture. But when it comes to the end of the day, we as pastors, we as pastors are to teach the scripture, and even those who are not pastors ought to be teaching the scripture. And there is a large majority of churchmen and church women and church members who just don't believe that there's anything necessary to learn. I've had I've had a pastor tell me out of his mouth and then he hung up the phone on me. He says this and I quote, "We are not supposed to teach the church. The sheep need to be dumb. When we turn them into theologians, they'll run amok." And he hangs up the phone on me because he doesn't want to hear me rebuke him because he's not a He's not teaching. He's just twisting Scripture to meet the offering needs or the social needs of the church, and it's wrong. It's an error. It's sinful, and it's not what God has called pastors to. And that is what happens. we got generation after generation after generation who are in worldliness, calling themselves ministers, calling themselves Christians, calling themselves saints, and then they continue to purvey the same type of thing they can they they teach the traditions and the twistedness of scripture and they remain ignorant and there's certain groups edward that actually say it, they take pride in the fact they're not studied now listen i don't think that seminary is necessary as a matter of fact i'm a little down on the academics that we see in our world today i mean you and i both have have done you know extensive uh, postgraduate work and i mean we've studied hard and we've written a lot and thank god that's behind us but in the end we've learned more through after we finish our school than we ever learn in the midst yeah. of the education. We do, it's so myopic and so insignificant. It teaches us how to learn, I think, when we go to school. But for the church, the church ought to right. be the seminary, not just for the elder candidates, but for the, but for the layperson in the back row, for the, for the teenager. Right. Teenagers need to know what the Bible teaches because through the knowledge of Scripture comes the solidity of faith. My children, Lord bless them, 
you know, the one thing I can say when they leave here is they will they will recognize false teaching very quickly. It doesn't mean that they're going to stay in the faith. It doesn't mean that they're regenerated. They claim to be. We see the fruits and the evidences of a lively faith. They're submissive to the Scripture sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, it's not because we did not teach them the truth that, that they would become ignorant uh, because they're not going to become ignorant. You can't take away what's been taught. And we are we're in a culture that people care more about social justice and social economics and politics and Christian living and not going to Starbucks because of their beliefs as a, as a co- company or not shopping at this place. We have more of that that's being continually taught to, a Christ, to, to professing Christians than we do the glory of Christ, seeing Jesus face-to-face through the lens of Scripture, and we're stuck and struck silent when we see it. When we see that high Christology in the in the text of Scripture that Paul teaches and that John teaches, when we see and hear the words of Jesus when he says, I am the bread that come down from heaven. For the believer, we're awestruck. Wow, what does that really mean? Then we learn a little bit deeply, more deeply, what the Lord is teaching us through his word about how he saved his people particularly. Then we worship more. What Paul says in second in Ephesians chapter one, he says that you know, not Second Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. He says that to the praise of the glorious grace of God. That's why he redeemed us, that we may praise him for his glorious grace. So it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very serious issue, and we've, we've talked and talked and talked. We've got about 10 minutes before the end of our podcast today. So with that, why don't we look at some scripture that's on the top of your head that, that yep. can solidify the authority of scripture in itself for the sake of the church. Okay. I think um, aside from the the Gospels, where Christ always appealed to Scripture, right. he did not appeal to tradition. In fact, he he um, he saw Scripture or tradition. He spoke about tradition of men in a very pejorative a pejorative way because they were replacing Scripture. Aside from all those passages, and aside from because uh, there's so many, but I think one or a, a set of passages that. I think express the point best, or at least uh, authoritatively, that Scripture is our final authority. Is and it speaks of the nature of Scripture. Yeah. I like what you read in in, in Peter said, um, dealing with the nature of Scripture. But Second Timothy three, uh, starting in uh, I would start in fifteen. Yes, because Paul talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. Not the sufficiency of the temple, the sufficiency of the church, but the sufficiency of Scripture when he says to Timothy, from childhood, you have known what the sacred writings, not the sacred traditions, right. but the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom and lead to uh, uh, salvation mm. uh, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And we know that, uh, which would be a good future program, that all through the Old Testament, we see the gospel. We see it pointing to the author of the Christian faith over right. and over That's and right. over. We see the multi-personal God, substitution and atonement of Isaiah 53, justification through faith alone, Psalm 32, and on and on and on. It was sufficient, the writings yeah. for salvation. And then Paul furthers his, his, his point. All Scripture, passographe, all Scripture is... Um, Breathe out is 
the best translation here yes. of Theopanusas, breathed out by God and is uh, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And in verse 17, it has an, uh, a particular conjunction, an in order that, or a purpose and result clause, in order that the man of God, of the Scripture, may be thoroughly uh, or adequately equipped, exartizo, for every good work. That's right. And I think why that's a very important point, because Paul's emphasis is on the nature of Scripture. I don't see him teaching a particular canon here. I don't think it's a canonical issue here when he says all Scripture. I believe he's speaking of the nature of Scripture right. as breathed out by God. And speaking to Timothy, it's just the nature of the Old Testament Scripture, the nature of the apostolic writings. And, uh, of course, we see the entire... We see a lot of the canon within the canon of the New Testament, within um, uh, within the pages of, of Paul's letters and Peter. We see other books were called Scripture that were in the New Testament. Right. And the reason why it's profitable for the Christian for teaching, it's because it's the Word of God. Right. So when all Scripture is breathed out by God, it is a philomos. It is profitable. And last point here in 17, in order that the man of God to be thoroughly equipped or fitted for a task for every good work. If this doesn't teach the aloneness of Scripture right. as sufficient, yeah. I, I don't know a passage that does. And the most interesting thing about these passages, how this is sufficient for every good work, is the effects of not teaching that the living Scripture alone is sufficient. Because the next verses... Mm. We read, you know, Paul says, preach the word, be ready, and get right. it out. That's right. Out of season, re- rebuke, reprove, re- exhort with great patience. And then he says in verse 3, because I know when a time is going to come, there's going to come a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. Yeah. But wanting to have their ears tickled, right? They accumulate. This is what's happening today. A great number of teachers, in accordance with their own desires, turn away from truth and aside from mythologies. Right. Aside to mythologies. That's the effect of not being a teaching pastor. That's the effect of not being grounded in the nature of the written word, in the sacred writings, that you'll be tossed back and forth by false winds of doctrine and uh, all kinds of mythologies. That's Paul's point there. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. That's a good word, Brother Edward. That's... um... And it, and it has such pastoral implications. I could talk for the for the next two hours about that, but one that I'll use in, in closing. First, I will say to those who say, well, Sola Scriptura, it's not the complete Word of God. You're right. There are many things that Jesus spoke and taught that are not recorded in Scripture, but we do not have them, and we will not have them. They have not been given to us. But everything that has been given to us is sufficient for our knowledge of God, is sufficient for the salvation of our soul, and is sufficient for our life with God with, with God as the author of our salvation. We have everything that we need, but certainly everything that Paul taught in, in Ephesus is not written in those letters. Everything that Jesus said in his life is not written in those four Gospels. No, it's not in a complete narrative of every word, but every word that is written, as we've seen here in 2 Timothy 3, is breathed out by God, and it is the only thing that's needed by the man of God to equip the church so that they may live as God has called us to live, first and foremost, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing that happens 
is that if we don't stick to Scripture, then I, as a leader, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a shepherd, I have great sway over a, a multitude of people. I have a great sway. What, what you and I say on this podcast can move people to change their lives and to change their minds and to change their direction. We could talk about a podcast about stewardship, and they could send money and do different things financially. That has great. That is a very serious issue. The Pharisees, because they took the Bible and they did not make it authoritative and they came up with their own interpretation and application of the Scripture, as we see there in Matthew 23, Jesus says that the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens impossible to bear and they lay them on the shoulders of their people, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Friends, if we're not careful when we don't hold to the authority of Scripture, we will teach people to do things and to believe things and to be subject to certain things that are unbiblical and then they will be in bondage. And I'll tell you, the last thing I have time for, the, the very the most important issue here is the pure and unadulterated gospel of grace. We believe in a sovereign grace. The Bible teaches a sovereign grace for a particular people, and this is sufficient for salvation for God's elect. And if we try to play with that, we try to make it more palatable, we're violating what Scripture teaches, we're doing what Paul said they will not do in Second Corinthians chapter 4. They do not what? Twist Scripture. They do not try to be cunning, but they boldly proclaim the truth. And if people can't see it and believe it, it's because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in Christ. And we know that God alone, through the Scripture, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. See, there it is, an allusion back to the Word of God. God in His voice, God in in His proclamation can cause the light of the gospel to shine into our hearts, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that's sort of what I'll leave us with today in the time that we have. And this has been a, this podcast has gone by very quickly, brother. I, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're only halfway through and maybe we should do some follow-up on some of these things. But those of you who listen, we thank you for listening to us, and we're so glad that you're following us. Please go to TheologyAnswers.com and submit a question. We're taking some of these questions offline. We're taking some of these questions through text message and email and, and Facebook Messenger. But if you have questions that you'd like answered, please go to TheologyAnswers.com and put it there. You can also listen to the rest of these podcasts. We are a podcast that is a part of the Christian Podcast Community, and you can go to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com and see more good biblical teaching. My name is James Tippins. My blog is over at AnchoringFaith.org and Edward Dalcor. His website and blog is over at ChristianDefense.org, and I really encourage you to check them out. We love you, and we're so glad that you spent this day with us, and we look forward to hearing from you soon, and we'll see you next week. Lord bless. Lord bless.